So uh, we're right in the midst of um, uh, the nation of Israel dealing with some closing chapters in uh, their lives and their experience. Numbers chapter 20, it says in verse 14, Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. So Jacob and Esau were brothers. All of Israel descends from Jacob. Esau's descendants uh, are known as Edom. So there is a, a historic animosity between them because Esau was the oldest brother and supposed to receive the inheritance. But it was the Lord's intention that Jacob would receive the inheritance and continue the line of the nation of Israel. Uh, Many of you have studied that in detail and know the trickery that was involved and the resentment that followed. And now you have this national level of prejudice between these two people. So uh, the, the challenges and the difficulties extend for hundreds of years up until this point. So... Again, continuing in verse 14, your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dealt in, dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. That began uh, with Joseph being betrayed by his brothers and his being sold into slavery and then he ultimately ends up as a ruler inside Egypt. Egypt. He interprets the king's dream and recognizes God's plan to store up grain and save the world from a worldwide famine that was going to take place. The Pharaoh honors Joseph for that wisdom, allowing his father and his brothers to move into the land. They settle in Goshen and they're given tremendous favor there inside Egypt until that Pharaoh passes away. And then the affliction and the bondage and the slavery follows. This is the hardship that he's referring to here. And that goes on for 300 years until uh, they're delivered by Moses out. And now they're passing through uh, Edom and uh, requesting passage. In verse 16, when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. Uh, we will not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Just a matter of days. They want to travel through the land uh, rather than having to go through the great effort of traveling through the wilderness, uh, they are you know, able to pass through this you know, basically developed road is what they're looking to do to make their passage much easier. Verse 18, then Edom said to him, so this is the king and they as a nation responding, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. So war is what will result if you cross that border. You come into the land with you know, more than 4 million people and we're going to come against you and attack you. And if your mind immediately goes to, well, 4 million against how many? Well, these guys aren't warriors yet, the nation of Israel. They're not accomplished warriors anyway. And their wives and children, cattle, livestock is all amongst that as they travel. So the melee would be horrible to, to say the least and it's definitely not anything that the nation of Israel you know wants to experience response in verse 19 so the children of Israel said to him we will go by the highway and if I or my livestock drink any of your water then I will pay for it let me only pass through on foot nothing more so you know we don't need food but you know I guess it could you know, happen that somebody would see a well and want to water their livestock. You know, can't control every single 
person in this large group of people. So, um, you know, if that happens, if you're thinking that we would somehow take from you, water is a very precious commodity in this, uh, you know, Middle Eastern region, uh, we'd be very willing to pay for that is, is what he's saying. So then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. You know, very often um, Christianity uh, makes the mistake of thinking that somehow we're going to be able to make friends with the world. That we're going to you know, be so negotiable and so pleasant and, you know, so hip and cool that they're going to like us. And honestly, even when they put on a good face, they don't. There, There is a spiritual conflict between them and us. Don't, don't get me wrong. We should not walk around with a chip on our shoulder in, you know, premeditated hatred and anger toward the world. But we shouldn't be so foolish as to think that the world is going to accept us. There's been a spiritual division between us and them. The same as with Jacob, right? You know, how many times have we heard people say, maybe we were one of those people that said, you know, who do these Christians think they are? You know, they think they're better than us. You know, any of us that's honest is immediately going to experience a humility about who we really are as people, and it's going to be impossible for us to look down on somebody else. We're going to immediately recognize our own behavior, our own characteristics in them. You know, Israel is asking of Edom in a very humble way, and there's a, an unfounded animosity that is coming back. That's very natural in the world, and we need to learn how to respond to that properly in love and in kindness, in humility. Jesus said in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, look, <clears throat> you're nothing special. That might be really insultive to you, but you don't perform miracles, walk on water, you know, feed 5,000 people at a time, raise the dead, give people their sight. Jesus did. And yet they hated him. We might be the kindest person around, but if they hated Jesus in all of his goodness, you can guarantee they're going to hate us also. Be prepared for that and respond appropriately. Uh, John, again, the next chapter, 16, verse 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trials, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We should be expecting that we would be met with hostility and resistance. And if, if you respond, right, overcome evil with good, if you automatically respond with kindness and forgiveness and grace, you know, behave as the Lord would. You'll find a very different reaction. You meet that hostility with hostility and you escalate the situation. Great opportunities within that. So here, Moses understands they're not going to be given passage by Edom. It shifts gears in verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which was given to the children of Israel. And notice this, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah, when they were given the opportunity to go into the land, they did not trust and obey the Lord. So those that did not are not going to be given passage into the land, and that includes Aaron and Moses. 
that's that's a tough call. You know, you can very often think like, well, surely, you know, Moses, surely Aaron. The, the Lord wanted to accurately paint a picture for us, right? <clears throat> Rewind Moses, and you get to some key points, such as his taking matters into his own hands and killing an Egyptian, right? There's a tremendous amount of anger and violence involved in that. You come to where the children of Israel are complaining and the Lord says, I want you, Moses, to go and speak to the rock. And he reacts and strikes the rock. And still the characteristics of his anger are present. And the Lord tells him because of this disobedience, because of this misrepresentation, you're not going to enter the land. It's powerful misrepresentation, not a minor one. God isn't looking for every minuscule infraction, right? We get to the New Testament, and Paul tells us that the rock that gave them water was Jesus. And you can wrestle with that any way you want to. The Scripture's seemingly indicating it wasn't even symbolically Jesus. It was literally Jesus somehow. That the water and the nourishment that they were provided was coming directly from Jesus Christ, through that rock. Well, Jesus Christ is only struck, right, injured one time in all of eternity, and that's at the cross, right? But, but hear me in this, right? We, as denominations and as individuals, very often take on a posture like, oh, I've got to get saved again, right? I got saved, but I now have backslidden, perhaps, and I, I'm in a very dry place spiritually, and you know, I finally made it back through the doors of the church, and I'm hearing this message, and like, I need to get saved again. Do you? I mean, do you need to be revived and resuscitated and renewed? Probably, but are you a child of God? Like, God doesn't reject his own, right? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus doesn't have to be crucified all over again. His sacrifice doesn't need to be you know, applied all over again to you and your sinfulness and salvation given back to you. God doesn't take it away from you. Have you relinquished your life to Christ? Yes. Did you act foolishly and do sinful and stupid things? Yes. Are you parched, dry spiritually like the nation of Israel in need of water? Yes. Then just speak to the rock. Speak to Jesus. And he'll pour out whatever you need. right? You don't have to go through some murderous process again. right? Jesus suffered once and for all. Read Hebrews, right? One sacrifice, one time for all of eternity. If you've accepted that, then you've got it. We don't need to go through it again. Moses doesn't need to hit the rock the second time. You don't need to strike at Jesus a second time. Just accept what he wants to give you right now. If you've already been through all of these things, some guys, you know, I deal with a lot of people that you know, struggle with drug addiction. That's my background, drugs and alcohol, crime and all that nonsense, you know, 30 plus years ago. And so I minister to a lot of those guys. And they fall and falter and they come back acting like, I need to get saved all over again. No, you don't. You need to stop using drugs. You know, that's for sure. And get back to church. Let's go right now, you know. And instead, the attitude, the conversation is though, you know, they're earning their way back. Like I've got to, you know, drag myself over all this broken glass again in order to get to Jesus. No, you don't. Speak to him. Open your mouth. Open your heart. Open the book. Start praying. Get in fellowship. Sing the songs. Lift your heart. You don't have to. Sorry. Moses is told, you're not going into the land. Aaron, misrepresentation of Christ, the faithlessness, right? He's the high priest, doesn't believe, doesn't you know, uh, follow the idea of God's fulfilling the promise and bringing them into the land. So you're not going to enter. There's a powerful example there. It's, it's not, again, I want to be really clear. It's not an image of Moses 
not obtaining salvation. Or Aaron not obtaining salvation. I need to slow this conversation down and make sure you're getting this. Moses and Aaron being kept out of the promised land is an image of being kept from the victorious Christian life. You cross the Red Sea, right? They're in bondage in Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. The New Testament tells us everyone was baptized with Moses as they passed through the Red Sea. Wow, I didn't even know that was a baptism. Old Testament symbolism of baptism passed through the Red Sea. Come to the Jordan River. The Lord says, you can cross this Jordan River right now. Moses, Aaron, the entire nation of Israel, let's go into the land and conquer the giants that live there and live a victorious life in the promised land. They say, we can't do it. Can't conquer these giants. They'll kill us. Because of their faithlessness, this is where the Lord says, you're not going into the land. That isn't death crossing the Jordan. That's baptism in the Spirit. Now, if you immediately go, oh, see, I knew this church was weird. Baptism in the Spirit. Pentecostalism. Here we go. They're going to roll around on the floor. <clears throat> Not at all. Okay. I believe in the gifts of the baptism. I teach the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues on my own in prayer between me and the Lord. The gifts are for today. I've seen prophecy work in my life. I have spoken prophecy to some of you who have seen the Lord fulfill those things in your life. The, the shenanigans that the church carries on in is not what the Lord has endorsed or given us. Okay, These gifts that the Lord has given us are for building the church up, making us stronger. As we accept the Holy Spirit, know this, hear this in what I'm saying. You may speak in tongues. And if that happens, come talk to me and we'll examine the word and see what that's all about. You may prophesy. And if that happens, come talk to me and we'll examine the word and see what that's all about. I guarantee if you are baptized in the Spirit, two things will happen. And this is what the Lord is offering in the baptism of the Spirit. They are the same commandments that Jesus gave the New Testament church. There's nothing, you know, weird about it. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And resultingly, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Baptized in the Spirit is going to produce love, right? What does Paul say there in Corinthians? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Right? I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In my profound wisdom, I bought my grandson a drum kit. <clears throat> Two sticks, foot pedal, cymbal. Man, can he wail on those things. There's no musical pattern right now at all. And that symbol, as much as it fills his heart with joy to just wail away on that thing, it doesn't bless me all the time. You know what I'm saying? It blesses me that he's having fun with it, but as far as it being a blessing that I could experience, it's not really doing that. So very often what the church engages in they're getting a thrill out of it. They're getting a kick out of it. But it's not blessing the church and the process. If you are filled with love, Paul's saying, you know, though I'm you know, able to speak in all of the languages of men, in all of the languages of angels, but have not love, clanging, simple clanging, gong. I'll show you a more excellent way or the most excellent way, he says, love. Love for the Lord, love for your neighbor, right? You want, you want to fix your marriage? Ask for the Lord to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You will fall in love with the Lord in such a way that that will overflow into your marriage. 
You want to fix your drug addiction? Fall in love with the Lord and you won't be able to be so selfish that you destroy yourself and all of your circumstances around you. You will love your neighbors as yourself, your boss and your family in such a way. Being baptized in the Spirit will most definitely give you the victorious life. You will cross the Jordan River, the second baptism, and you will start killing off the giants in your life. The financial troubles and the addictions and the marital problems will start to fall in front of you. And in your pride and your arrogance, you'll think, I'm doing awesome, and you'll charge into the next battle and fail. And God will show you where you went wrong and then join you in the battle. And you'll see, this is not an image of death, right? We, we misappropriated that through spiritual songs. I looked over Jordan. What did I see? Coming forward to carry me home. Band of angels coming after me. Going to heaven was with the image that the church painted. That, that's not what happened. You'll notice Moses dies on this side of the Jordan. And the point is, you don't get to enter into the victories that are ahead for Israel. Because you're still stuck in your same old ways. If you're going to stay in your selfishness, you're not going to develop your love for the Lord. If you're not going to develop your relationship with the Lord, not going to grow, then you're not going to see these victories in your life. You're going to be on this side of the Jordan. You're not going to cross over into conquering the things that need to be conquered. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, that's kind of me. Pray for the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just brush aside all that you've seen on Trinity Broadcast Network and the weirdness that goes on there, you know, the ill-gotten behaviors of money-hungry people. Ask the Lord to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You ever hear D.L. Moody? Anybody? Surely some of you heard D.L. Moody, right? Amazing preacher. D.L. Moody wrote all of his sermons, word for word, wrote every single syllable that was going to come out of his mouth. <clears throat> and uh, two women met him and said, you know, we're going to pray that you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he was a little offended. <laughs> He's a minister and, you know. But he thanked them. This is by his own hand, his own record. And he was in his study one evening, and he went out into the living room to fill the wood stove. And as he was out there filling the wood stove, he became aware that, in his words, the Lord Jesus Christ was standing in the room with him. And he couldn't even turn to look. He fell to the floor in fear. And according to him, a wave of God's love fell upon him and crushed him to the floor. And he lay under that pressure, experiencing the overwhelming love and acceptance of Christ. And as it began to lift and he began to rise, a second wave landed upon him and crushed him to the floor. And that continued in repeated cycles until he had rolled over and he raised his hands and said, enough, meaning I now understand your love and your acceptance of me. And he rose and he didn't change much of anything. And he went to church to preach and the church was surrounded with people that were waiting to get inside. The church was already full, and everyone was already weeping and shaking and repenting of their sins and asking how they might be saved. See, not the work of D.L. Moody, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he went in, and he preached a sermon that he had previously preached because he wrote all of his sermons out, line upon line, Syllable upon syllable, same as he had before. And people were, before he even gave the invitation, gathering at the front on their knees with their hands raised, praying and asking for salvation. When we hear of the great revivals that have occurred, 
you know, we so often think of them as something that men has orchestrated, when in fact it's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what's needed in the church, right? That old statement, if you took the church in the book of Acts and you removed the Holy Spirit, 90% of what was going on would have immediately stopped. You take the church today, remove the Holy Spirit, 90% of what's going on would just continue to go on, same as it ever has. What is needed is the victorious life that comes from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church needs to surrender. This symbol right here is for us, sitting here this morning in this church, to understand that, that we can conduct ourselves in Christianity without the depth that's actually needed. The surrendered heart, the surrendered mind. So, they take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them up to Mount Hor in verse 26, and strip Aaron of his garments, put them on Eliezer, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there, meaning that he's going to be with the Lord. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. They went up on Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, simply meaning they take the priestly robes off from him, put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. Now if you read that and you think, my goodness, that's kind of a cold, callous approach. God tells everybody in detail how Aaron's going to die and then they just sort of mechanically walk through it. Uh, you know that all of the human emotion that was going to be involved was involved in this experience, right? If you're told your sibling is about to die, and this is how it's going to transpire, and then it starts to transpire, your heart's going to be broken on a lot of levels. So we get the record here, but you can guarantee the depth of the human experience and the emotion was involved. But the beautiful thing is, the Lord has told them, Aaron is going to be gathered unto me. That's always such a great comfort, isn't it? When someone passes away and you have the assurance that they're in the presence of the Lord. There's really three kinds of funerals. You have the ones where you have the assurance that they're with the Lord. Then you have the ones where you don't really know. It's possible Right? They knew the Lord, they were around the faith, they expressed the faith, but their life didn't really reflect it. So you have the hope that they're with the Lord, and that's what you dwell upon, the hope. Then you have the occasions where it's hopeless. The person exited the world cursing God. That's such a nightmare. That's such a heartbreaking experience. I only experienced it a few times. What a gracious thing. When someone exits this world and you have the assurance that they're going to be with the Lord. The beauty of their life surrendered. The, the man dies here, but the priesthood and the access and relationship with God, it describes, that carries on, right? It transfers to Eliezer. And ultimately it transfers to Jesus. And the ability to access God is never broken. God makes sure that is always in place. Make sure you don't do that with your heart, your mind, your behavior, right? You had some dear relative who was your guiding light, right? When it got tough, you called Aunt Melba and she prayed for you. You know, wonderful, great. Uncle Joe was always faithful to deliver the word of God. That's wonderful. You know, a certain person who helped you understand how to access God and who God was. But here's the thing. They were simply pointing you towards the access. They weren't the point of access. And it's very important that you develop your own relationship and access to God. I know a lot of people do this. An awful lot of people do this. You know, a lot of people try to do it with me. 
You know, they call me up every time something I just Pastor Will, will you tell me, what is this all about? Can you tell me and now now will you pray for it? Wonderful, great. But what I try to do is spoon feed that that until they're consuming it on their own. It's it's critically important that you get to the place where this is your own relationship with the Lord. If if anyone in your life isn't doing that, you've got you've got an access point through them and they're not forcing you towards the Lord themselves. You're being robbed. Moses and Aaron are pointing the people to the Lord, directing the people to the Lord. Very few of them at this point in history learn that for themselves, that they have access and ability on their own to be with the Lord. Critically important that especially we as New Testament believers, we understand that. Moving into chapter 21, at verse (coughs) 1, excuse me, the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road of Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. Now here's the thing. Upon the initial reading, we're all probably going to go, man, this is terrible. But here's the thing. Israel is going to move into Canaan. And they're going to be fighting battles and wars continuously. If they don't begin to learn that process, then they're going to be experiencing defeat nonstop. If they don't learn some of the fighting capabilities, right? We're in a war as Christians. The New Testament especially makes that painfully clear that we are in a struggle for our lives. And they are against spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And Paul goes to great efforts to explain to us what our our weapons are in that, which is prayer and the word of God, the Holy Spirit. We we get some firm explanation for it. Now, I don't know about you, but my experience with the Lord when I first really surrendered my life to Christ was magnificent. I could pray and answers came. And I was in need and the Lord provided And someone else wanted to know, and there was the answer. It was just continuous, wonderful. And then I hit a point where I was in need, and I was praying my heart out, and the answer wasn't coming, right? You know, and people say, well, God's the God of the 11th hour. No, at that point, God started to show me that he was the God of 10 days later, really late, when, you know, you weren't expecting it, and you only got half the package. And the rest, you had to fight for tooth and nail. Great provision for the nation of Israel. Manna from the sky, water from the rock. Quails just fly in right in the batter's box, and they can just knock them right out of the air. Great provision by the Lord. And now, war. Why? Because they're going to be engaged in warfare. If you're looking for the easy ride, Christianity is going to be dramatically disappointing for you. The Lord takes care of the babes and he grows them up. You first come into the kingdom, there's a great deal of wonderful care that goes on. And that doesn't stop, but the Lord has to teach you to stand up and to run and to keep your balance in the fight. And to slay your enemies. You know, I often dislike when I have to preach these sermons because I simultaneously have to live them out. I got up this morning and literally from the moment I opened my eyes until I stand here in the pulpit, it's just been the meat grinder all morning. Nonstop. (laughs) Running late, trying to help my mom, get her going my wife walks back in the door says the car won't start you know and i go out and it's underneath that much snow and ice and i'm like i'll get this no problem but she's parked in so far that i can't get the cables to the battery so then i'm just like well i'll put this thing in neutral and you know push it out to where i can get it and her car will not go into neutral 
No, no, like mechanically Ford and their genius designed it such that unless the car is turned on, put the key in, turn, step on the brake, do all the stuff, and all you mechanics are going to come to me later and be like, you should have. That's not true. <clears throat> I tried all that stuff. It would not go into neutral. So in my brilliance, I said, I'll just drag this thing across the yard. <clears throat> so I moved my truck over. I got the chain out and hooked it up to my truck, and there's no tow hook on the back of my wife's car. So then I have to shift gears, and this went all morning, all morning, till I'm here, and it's still going on here in this building. And here's the point. i got to push through to get to this place where I stand here and tell you, you got to grit your teeth and fight sometimes to get to where you're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be standing right here, right now, preaching this message to you. I don't get to preach this, preach this message to you if I'm living the easy, cushy life. i got to have my own struggles, and you're going to have your struggles, right? I can tell you what would have happened 30 years ago if that had been my morning. There'd be about three to $500 in repair bills. I'm not joking. From things that I had smashed in my anger, in my rage, and I would have just disappeared out of the dooryard. My wife would have no idea where I was, and I'd be off getting drunk or high someplace. Failure and defeat would have been my morning. Instead, push through to this moment where I get to deliver the Word of God to you. As I said, you know, 30 years ago. I'm not, not last week, guys, right? You know what I'm saying? 30 years ago, that would have been the stupidity of my life. Defeat. Like, like Moses, I would have been striking at the rock. Like Aaron, I would have been expressing all the doubt in the world. This morning, maybe there's a little bit of Joshua's character in my life, and I'm able to just put my head down and draw the sword and pray and move forward. You've got you've to be ready for the fight that's involved in living out this faith. If you're not, and you're, and you're looking for the pink cloud, like I say, it's going to be horribly disappointing. This new fight that's come here, prisoners have been captured, so Israel, verse 2, made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of the place was called Horma, which means devoted to utter destruction. So, you know, always nice when you get to take a vacation in a place that's known as devoted to utter destruction. But anyway, you know, that's the name that they gave to this location. We've got about 15 minutes. I'm going to probably go a little long, a little long. I just want to cover this next section. In verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Because of that failed negotiation, they've got to make this extra effort. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Man, you just almost hear the music at that point, don't you? Wah, wah, wah. Just like, really? I mean, for, for all of the occasions we've experienced this in the past, you're going to do this again? You're going you're gonna to complain against your spiritual leadership, and you're going to complain against the Lord. You know the outcome, right? Death literally follows these occasions. You complain against the Lord? Okay, you know. And it isn't even, you guys have to understand, it's not even so much that God wants to harm them. It's Do the self-application, right? When you and I begin to complain against the Lord and act in faithless ways, it's almost like it, it isn't even that God lifts his hands off us. We push his hand away. And now we find ourselves just experiencing life in the raw. And man, doesn't that stink, right? Death is what comes. You shove God's hand away, uh, all the good, right? Even if that, if you're saying, well, there's not a lot of good in my life. Okay, but the little good that you have, that's from the Lord. 
It can be a lot worse. Push his hand away and all the destruction just surges back in. All of the pain just rushes to the front. So they're discouraged, right? So think about this. Well, I'm justified in my complaining because we've had to take the long way around. <laughs> Look at all the hardship I'm having to go through. So that justifies the complaining, the faithlessness of our behavior. That's the mindset of these people in this moment. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What a bunch of drama queens. There's no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's manna they're talking about. Loathes this worthless bread. Oh, the worthless free bread you've been receiving day by day for decades, that worthless bread? Okay. I hate this free paycheck I'm getting. Really? You know, okay. It's nowhere near as big as it used to be. Doesn't have any benefits attached to it. It's just bland. It's just, all it's doing is paying my bills. <laughs> Do we not get, okay, I get like this, you pray for me, okay? So, this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. God sends, you know, oh, oh you think it's bad? Well, let, you know, let's see what bad really looks like. <laughs> Here it is, death and destruction. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. That's a good confession right there. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent like what you're seeing amongst you, and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. It's as simple as that. If they would simply look up at the serpent, they would be cured in the process. Now, if you haven't studied this before and you're not picking up on it, the bronze serpent is a symbol of Jesus. On the cross. And people go, serpent is death and wickedness and venom. That's you. Sin and death and venom and wrong and evil. That's you and me. And Jesus Christ took all of that badness, that sin, upon himself at the cross. You were going to die and be sent to hell. And Jesus took all of that upon himself. At the cross. All you got to do is look to the cross, right? Notice you don't have to perform some big sacrifice. You don't have to do some amazing work. You don't have to really do anything other than look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And therein is salvation. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a historic explanation. And some of you may lose traction with me thinking that it doesn't have a direct application, but it very much does. So stay with these details. This biblical account occurred in 1410 B.C., so before Christ. It was probably the inspiration for the rod of Eclepius. Some of you may be familiar with the Greek god of healing. His rod was a staff or walking stick with a snake wrapped around it. All right? One of the first stories of Asclepius was by Homer in the Iliad in the 8th century BC, over 500 years after this biblical account with Moses. So very often we find that Greek mythology 
was actually inspired by real events that took place in the Scripture. Real circumstances that happened at the hands of God. The other cultures heard about these things for centuries, 500 years, 600 years, 700 years, and they develop, they develop Samson into Hercules by the time they get a hold of it and do what they're doing with it. You have a real biblical account that Satan then counterfeits in a false religion in order to make the real thing worthless. This is the real account and probably inspired that. I want to go a little further with this, so stay with me. Adding further confusion to our understanding in ancient mythology, Hermes and Mercury were the messengers of the mythological gods. And in ancient art, these messengers are often depicted carrying the caduceus. And if you're thinking, I don't know what that is. It's a short rod that is intertwined with two serpents that has a set of wings at the top. Sounding familiar at this point? Okay. Uh, the wings on the caduceus, you think, why are the wings on that? Mercury and Hermes also had wings upon their hat and wings upon their feet or their shoes. The caduceus simply represented the message that they were delivering from the Greek gods. So it was the speed at which the message would be delivered. That's, that's all that that's about. Through the centuries, because of the similarities uh, between the caduceus and the rod of Asclepius, people mix them up. You get symbols and statues and artwork depicting these two things until the caduceus, the messenger's rod is thought to be similar to Asclepius rod which was a symbol of healing for the Greeks so now the caduceus is thought of as a symbol of healing also and begins to get used periodically in medicine to really cap things off the uh, US Army Medical Corps in 1902 at the insistence of a single officer, and there's some confusion as to whether it was Captain Frederick P. Reynolds or Colonel John R. Van Hoff, but one of them insisted that the caduceus become the symbol of the U.S. Army Medical Corps, and today the caduceus is even the symbol of the World Health Organization. Single rod, two snakes, wings at the top, okay? Go to something that's slightly more Christian like St. Joseph's Hospital, and they've got a single rod with the snake on it, and they're thinking, very often you ask people, like, you know, what's that symbol about? And they'll say, well, Moses' rod. Neither one of them are Moses' rod, okay? Uh, one is Asclepius' rod, which was inspired by Jesus, really. The snake on the pole was supposed to represent Jesus taking upon the sins of the world. Spiritual application? The world is really confused about how who it should turn to for healing. Right? Medicine, doctors, Greek mythology, all kinds of opinions, right? Which doctors? You know, you know, voodoo, just so many people you have voodoo in my house. I'm constantly complaining about that stupid <clears throat> essential oil burner. I just, you know, get that thing going. That's going to make you better. I just, I don't know. Walk in the house and the whole place is just eucalyptus. I don't know. Whatever. Jesus said that the sick are in need of a physician. Right? I'm not anti-medicine even remotely. The scripture is not anti-medicine, even remotely. Jesus is not anti-medicine, even remotely. Okay? But the issue is, what Jesus is capable of doing, 
in all of our situations is so superior to anything that men can offer, right? I, I run into this all the time with people. You know, they, they come, and, and where it most bothers me is they're describing a spiritual problem. And they've been to their doctor. They don't even recognize that. You've been to your doctor about a spiritual problem. I'm filled with anxiety. I'm totally depressed. I've got this terrible circumstance in my life, and I've been to see the doctor. Okay, I've done a lot of study, and I don't mean like I've just read Dr. Google. Right? I'm, I'm talking about medical journals. Read all of the studies. When I don't understand the word literally, go look the word up. Fine, come back with a better understanding and continue the reading and move through these things. You know, how about this? No show of hands, but go to the doctor with the problem. Doctor prescribes the pill. You're now taking the pill. It works at first, but the effect starts to fade. You go back to the doctor and say, not working so much. He says, well, that's because we need to add this second pill. Why did I get that in the first place? But anyway, so now you're on the second pill and sometimes the first pill. And now you got weird stuff going on. You go back and you got weird stuff going on. He says, well, that's the side effects. Right? Some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> so he says, you're going to take this pill for the side effects. So you take that pill for the side effects, but it counteracts what you're doing with the other two pills. So you go back weeks later and say, what do I do? And they say, well, you got to add this. And now you're on like 10 pills. And you're like, Doc, when's this going to end? And he said, well, now that we started this cycle, never, you know. We can get to a point where none of this works, and we'll sweep all of that aside, and we'll move over to the new thing, but we'll go through a similar cycle with all of that, right? Now, we all know we've been to the doctor and said, I got the bad thing going on, and he said, you need to take this for 10 days or 20 days or three months or whatever, and it cures the issue, right? So there is healing there. But there's also a point where that just sort of stops. And we need to appeal to Christ. So much better off to begin there before we're seeking the wisdom of men, before we're doing that, to seek the wisdom of God. You yourself to say, Lord, number one, what's my problem? What is it that's going on? Because very often we're thinking, this is my problem right here. And the Lord says, you're not even looking at the right thing. Let's talk about this over here. Right? How about this? <clears throat> How about this biblical analysis from Proverbs? Anxiety in the heart of a person produces depression. Hmm. Very often, the person who's suffering so profoundly with depression needs to look at, what am I anxious about that's creating the depression? And sometimes that's frightening, isn't it? Because it's your spouse and your car and your job and your kids and your finances and your health and your cat and your goldfish and your, you know what I'm saying? It just doesn't stop. You got a list that's yards long. But here's the thing. If you pay attention to what the Lord is saying, very often he says, we really do need to start on that list. Top of the list you missed altogether was your relationship with me. So let's begin there. And now that we've got that firmly established, let's start talking about your relationship with your spouse, which is affecting your kids, which is affecting your finances which is affecting, and as you begin to address this, the depression starts to drop because things start getting in order. We would love a pill that took care of everything, wouldn't we? Just walking in and be like, dog, my life stinks. And he says, here, take this and you do. And wow, not only are you happy about it, but everything is literally cured. That would be amazing. <clears throat> Check your bank account. It's loaded with cash, you know. All from that pill. Amazing. That would be great. Doesn't happen. You got to look to the serpent on the pole, brothers and sisters. Jesus, who took it all for you. That's where you got to start. And he may say, hey, 
you're sick and you need to go see your doctor and the medicine he prescribes to you, you need to take that faithfully. That, that may be part of what you derive from looking to the one who has provided you with the cure for all things. But so very often we sweep that aside. Imagine how dumb you are if you're in the camp of Israel and you've been bitten by a snake and you're dying and the guy next to you just got cured and you're like, I'm not looking at that snake. How silly are you if you're sitting here this morning going, I'm not going to look at this nonsense of Jesus in your Bible. We can be very foolish, can't we? There is a resource that's been laid out to you. I want to take you a little bit further. There at the end of verse 9, he said, When he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. As I said, you might be thinking you've got to do some great work or sacrifice. John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. If you think there's some legwork involved, there is. You have to believe in the one who has been sent by God. That's the work you've got to do. Pretty simple, huh? Right. The reason we don't like that, it's too simple, is because we're filled with pride and we somehow think there's something we've got to do. And what we need to do is rely upon everything that Christ did in this situation. The next time we see this brass serpent is 700 years later. And the nation of Israel has turned it into an idol. And there is a giant cult that worships the brass serpent. Israelites. Not, not like it got transported out to the pagan Philistines and they've turned it into a false god. The nation of Israel has taken this relic and they've put it in a temple and they all go and worship the brass serpent. They've turned healing God's provision into an idol. There are people that do that even today. Great Reformer, King Hezekiah is purifying the land. In 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, which means thing of brass. Literally, what Hezekiah did was smashed the idol and said, this is just brass. This is not your God. This is not the God of Israel. This is just a thing that is made. Imagine if we had a relic here this morning, you know, right here in our center of worship, and we could say, Moses made this with his own hands. That's how these people were. Moses had literally made this with his own hands, and everybody's venerating it like a relic. Oh, some of you have come from the Roman Catholic institution where they've got relics like that. And you can literally pray to them. The hand of James cut off. It's not even the hand of James, but anyway, they've got a human hand mummified. Because when they cut James' hand off, apparently he put... When they cut his head off, apparently he put his hand up and they took his hand and his head. And so somebody saved the hand and now it's a relic. <clears throat> and you can wait in a line that's miles long to get in and kneel down before it and pray. <laughs> Nehushtan, you know what I'm saying? Thing of brass, thing of bone, thing of plastic. Who knows? You know what I'm saying? You know, bobblehead Jesus on your car. It's a backup supplemental insurance program that you can get. You know, talk to Geico, get the you know general coverage, and then the Jesus on your dash or Mary or whatever. When that's all shattered and smashed in the car accident, you can just say, "Yep, thing of plastic." You know, if you're relying upon it that way. 
the foolishness, the foolishness that people hold to within Christianity, within Christianity, pursuing all these other things that leave them still dying of the poison from the snake that runs through their veins. The sin of our lives destroying us. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Lift your face up to his cross and accept what he's offering everyone. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. As I pondered this last night, and I was thinking the difference between the caduceus, the messenger's rod, and the rod of Asclepius, I really felt like the Lord was saying, remind the people that our healing, symbolized by Moses' rod, is Jesus, and that our message is the good news. Swifter than any message sent by man or otherwise. We have one message to focus on and one healer to focus on. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to be men and women who cling to it, who wait upon you for your answers in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.